The lesson is found in Mark chapter 9. We are reading verses 30 through 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but he was not fought because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for your help. We need your spirit to lead us in the light of your truth. Lord, we ask that you would guide us into the practice of it as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1962, a scientist named Thomas Kuhn wrote a very influential landmark book. It was called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And people ask, what does this have to do with us today? But it became a uh, landmark book because of what Kuhn observed about the nature of human knowledge. And basically, the thesis works like this. He says that uh, scientists have paradigms through which they interpret data. And so the paradigm operates somewhat like a filter, okay? Think of a coffee filter. And we take all the data and observations about the world, and we then understand them and bring them into into, uh, our lives, appropriating them through the filter that we've designed to interpret the evidence. But Kuhn was using the example of the Copernican Revolution. He said, well, there was a large change in, uh, in the history of science about how we viewed our universe, And at the Copernican Revolution, we understood and figured out that the world, the earth, was not the center of the universe, that the sun didn't rotate around it, that the earth was actually rotating around the sun. 
And so he discusses the process of change and the revolution that took place. Because what has to happen for change and revolution to take place is that the data has to begin to clunk up in the filter, not to pass through. And so Kuhn's whole theory in the book is that is when the data no longer passes through the filter and when it is completely seized up, that suddenly everyone recognizes that a new filter is necessary for interpreting the data. And this is what caused the Copernican Revolution. And friends, it's really no different in any area of life, that we all have paradigms that are at work that help us understand the world and the data that we receive, that help us interpret it. All of life is like this, and those paradigms are largely unconscious. And what Jesus is confronting with his disciples in Mark chapter 9, in a confrontation that extends from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10, is an insufficient paradigm for understanding who he is and the way of his kingdom. That the disciples are struggling to understand that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. In verses 31, he once again is teaching his disciples. And then he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, it's easy for us to miss the complication of Jesus' language. But he refers, using this phrase, Son of Man, to Daniel 7. And this was the great king who was coming from the Ancient of Days enthroned in Daniel 7, who was coming to exercise God's sovereignty over the earth. That is the Son of Man. And then Jesus spoke of dying and rising again. And the disciples were confused. How were these two things ever to meet up? Death, which was destruction, and the Son of Man coming to rule over the world. These were two irreconcilable things. And the disciples were struggling in their paradigms for what Messiah is and how Messiah was to work. And so Jesus takes them away. He takes them away from the crowds, and what he's doing is he's re-educating them. And friends, this is what he's doing with us as well, is he will challenge our paradigms for how we understand him, how we interpret him, the Jesus we want him to be and expect him to be, and he wants to re-educate us. He wants to fashion himself according to his own definitions, that we appreciate him for who he is. And there's one specific problem, though, that Jesus addresses with his disciples in this large passage. And there's one specific thing that was keeping them from understanding who exactly he was. And it's very simple, that what was causing the stumbling block in their paradigm, that what was not allowing them to understand Jesus was their own quest for greatness. This was in the way. And so Jesus has to confront them, and he is seeking to re-educate them And there's three problems that surface with greatness, though, in the passage. And the first is this, is that our pursuit of greatness conflicts with Jesus' definition of greatness. Follow with me in verse 33. They arrive in Capernaum, and Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the road? Obviously, he knew. And then in some guilty silence, They didn't want to confess it. And finally, it came out 
they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They were looking for preeminence, success, greatness in the company of disciples. Perhaps this was sparked by the fact that Peter, James, and John had been taken up to the mountain and seen something, um, had seen something miraculous, the transformed and transfigured Jesus. And so here they are arguing with one another. And then Jesus provides the corrective. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus is not opposed to greatness, but he's opposed to the greatness that's native to our hearts. That our greatness is typically about preeminence. It's about glory. It's about honor. It's about position and prestige. And Jesus says that it is the way that you go about that position and prestige that is really important to me. And so the first, if you want to be first, you will will be last. This is the way power works in my kingdom. And it is because of this, of this upside-down dynamic, that the disciples could not understand that Jesus' great victory was going to be accomplished through death. And so they were missing him, They were not understanding who he was, and then also their lifestyle was out of accord with the way of the kingdom, and they're arguing amongst themselves about which one is, uh, who has preeminence. And so then Jesus gives a very graphic illustration. He takes a child while he's sitting in the house. He pulls the child into his arms and brings him into the midst of them, and then he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, why was this such a powerful illustration? It's in the first century world, children were the weakest members of society. In fact, because of half half of the children under five years old died, children were a very low station. They had hardly any status. And so Jesus pulls this weakest member of society into the company of the disciples. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, you have to be the servant of all. And what he was saying through his illustration is we have to serve the weakest members, willing to debase ourselves. And that's what it means to be great in my kingdom. It's not seeking after positions of prominence and authority and thinking that makes us important. But importance and prestige is redefined and turned all kinds of upside down. And Jesus does oppose our definitions of greatness. And friends, the thing is, is that we will always struggle with this. Because it is not the native language of our hearts. But we struggle with it until we experience Jesus' own sufferings on our behalf. That until we have some kind of experience that breaks through our paradigm, that defines greatness in the wrong ways, that 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 experience must be Jesus' own sufferings on our behalf. Before we can bear the cross that Jesus asks us to bear, we have to know that he's born a cross for us. That is the order of things. We have to know the one who has served us in his own sufferings. Several years ago, as a young minister, I went through a trial that I was not expecting. And there was one particular night where things had reached a a pinnacle. And it felt like my life was just breaking apart, and I didn't know how to understand it. And I told Melissa that I just needed to go out for a walk, and so I began walking. 
And uh, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. And I just began walking down streets. And then I called my friend and I said, you know, I don't know what to do. He said, well, where are you? I said, I'm walking. He said, well, walk to my house. It was probably 10 at night. It was not a convenient time. He welcomed me into his house, and then we sat for several hours, and he prayed for me, and he counseled me, and he directed me in the way that I should go and what I needed to do. And a hot mess sitting on on his couch, completely confused, utterly disillusioned about what God was doing in my life, what was happening in these circumstances. My friend, Tim Russell, served me. And friends, it was in that experience that something clicked. That that's what it meant to be great in the kingdom of heaven, was to be a servant. To live in that kind of way. And something clicked for me personally. That it was in being served that you can learn to be a servant. And friends, it takes those personal kind of encounters, but then it takes that personal reflection upon the cross of Jesus. The servant of all who gives himself, who goes low in order to exalt you, who takes on your sins, who goes into death, being the servant of all. And that's what has to happen to us if we want to make this critical redefinition of success and of greatness. Richard Baucom says it well. He says, the God who is high can also be low because God is God not in seeking his own advantage, but in self-giving. This is who God is. He doesn't seek his own uh, advantage, but he gives himself to the world. And so if we're going to understand Jesus, we have to understand this core central fact about who he is and who our God is, and then the implications for our lives that we pursue greatness through being servants. Now the second thing, the problem that surfaces, is that our pursuit of greatness nurtures a godless form of competition. So Jesus addresses the disciples on their argument about greatness. And then no sooner is he done, John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's so classic for the disciples. They've just had a massive failure in chapter 9, casting out a demon. You remember from last week? Jesus comes off the mountain and he meets a chaotic crowd and the disciples could not cast out the demon. Now this man is having success in Jesus' name, casting out demons, and what do the disciples want to do? They want to create a party. You know, no, you can't do that. You are not following us and so we're going to stop you. And it seems that they're caught up in their own status They're caught up in their own privilege of being Jesus' disciples. And what this nurtures is a godless form of competition where they want to stifle others who are not with them, who they don't perceive as in their cause despite the fact that they are clearly working on behalf of Christ. When I first arrived in Washington, D.C., Um, I learned that one of the large churches uh, that was in the suburbs of Washington was also planting a church in Arlington, Virginia, where I had just moved my family. And I learned it at at an early service at that church. I was attending just to to meet the pastor, 
And I, I read it in the bulletin that they were starting a church plant, and they hoped to start in the summer of 2010. And I said, well, this is inconvenient. We were of the same tradition and style, and uh, I wish there had been some coordination around this, but I guess it's too late. The money is raised, and we're all committed, both sides. So we've got to work this out. The one saving grace at that point seemed to be that we were, had about six to nine months' difference in our timelines, and so perhaps this would kind of work. And so I met with the young church planter, and I just said, hey, introducing myself and, uh, and explaining kind of our work and why that uh, work was taking place. And he looked at me and he said, why are you here? And so I went back through the story about why we were, why we were there. And it was clear from the start that this was probably going to be contentious. Two young guys, neurotically insecure about failing in their church planting endeavors, now being pitted against one another. Meeting about two miles apart, which in, in, uh, in that city environment, that's actually a long ways, but still close enough and of similar traditions. We had a few more strained conversations, and then we called a hiatus for some time. And, and I remember then we were going through the process of naming our young church plant, and we had written up a blog post about the, the different names and why we needed to think about an appropriate name for our church. And then someone forwarded me a link from the other church that was forming, and I found some of my own material that I had written <laughs> incorporated into their materials about naming the church. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> And mind you, this was a church that was starting with 200 people out of the gate. You know, this was, this was not a small operation. We were a ragtag group of two small group Bible studies. We were no threat. You know? um, and, and so then there was, a, uh, there was another matter where we had announced our, uh, our, the start of our worship services, that we were going to begin worshiping uh, January 25th, 2010. And, uh, and so we were building up to that to be ready to go. And then suddenly... Um, the worship start for the other congregation had moved from August all the way back into January. And it was on January 25th. And it would be convenient for me if I could just say it was only he who had sin in that process. But friends, it was an invitation for me to try to work out what Jesus was saying. Among some other things, but he who's not against us is for us. And friends, in the Christian church, we have all kinds of struggles with this because we want to be great. We want to be pre uh, predominant. We want to be preeminent. We want our church to be best. It's fine to have denominational distinctives and beliefs that you hold to, but we also need to be careful about the arrogance that can be tightly tied to these things. Okay? Even inside of denominations, this happens. And there can be a factiousness and, a rival and rivalries that can build in an unhealthy competition. Rather than simply a humble confidence that we're a congregation trying to walk with God. Okay? And that's what Jesus would want to nurture here. That's the greatness that He wants us to have. And He doesn't want our greatness to form a kind of competitive competition. And the final thing that Jesus seeks to re-educate, though, with the disciples 
is that their pursuit of greatness obscures the witness of God's kingdom. If you look in verse 50, 49, excuse me, very difficult verse, says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's a common metaphor in the Bible, and it can be used in many different ways. Uh, What it appears to in this verse is that salt was used with sacrificial offerings, okay? And so Jesus is saying that there will be sacrifice in all of my disciples' lives. And then in verse 50, he shifts the metaphor. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And so now he's using salt as the metaphor about witness that we're very familiar with with, from Colossians 3 and other verses in the Bible, that salt is a preservative agent. And so Jesus seems to shift here where he says it's good, but you've lost your ability to be my witnesses, and how will you be made salty again? Then he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so Jesus knew that as long as this quest for greatness was amongst them and living in the community of disciples, that they were going to be divided and be contentious. They were going to be arguing about who's the greatest, and they were going to be trying to exclude other people because they were concerned with themselves. They were consumed with themselves. And so he says, have salt and be at peace with one another. That this is one of the things that the gospel provides us with is the ability to serve others. Not to consider ourselves preeminent, not to think that we are the most important, but to be the servant of all and that if we want to be first, we have to be last. And friends, when a community is divided and it has factions in it, it's always because people are not considering the dynamic of the gospel that to be first is to be last. It's when people put themselves first. And this is what Jesus is attempting to correct with the disciples, and that it obscures their witness in the broader world, and it taints everything that they're doing. And you notice the context surrounding these verses from 42 to 50. Jesus says that we have to take it seriously. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones, he's referring to the child once again, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so this is the picture. Jesus says, if you scandalize one of these little ones, that would be a literal interpretation of the passage. If you scandalize one of these little ones, he's saying, if you don't serve this little child, If you don't inhabit the way of my kingdom to be a servant of all, then it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea. And then he gives several metaphors about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands and cutting off feet. Now, in the early church, people literally did this. Okay? Please don't. That's what we call fundamentalism. All right? Jesus is using a literary mechanism here where he's telling us, though, you have to take it seriously. That these divisive sins that cause competition and rivalry and divisions that lead to a lack of peace in a community, that you have to cut it out. That you have to stop. 
and that what needs to be excised from us, what needs to be surgically removed by God are those parts of our personality, those values in our hearts that lead to these types of behaviors. That that's what needs to be cut off. And friends, cutting off your hand doesn't get rid of your pride. I'd be the first with my hand on the block if it were that easy. But God wants to address the matters of our hearts that lead to a lack of peace, to a lack of unity, and that lead to this quest for greatness. And when we fail to do that, we don't live at peace. We don't have one accord in the community. And all of this is just an invitation into understanding Jesus. Because it will not make sense to us to be servants of one another, to put yourself last in order to be first. It will make no sense until we gain a clear sight that this was Jesus' way in the kingdom. It's the way He inaugurates the kingdom and kicks it off in death and resurrection. And friends, as long as the cross is obscure to us, service will be obscure to us. It will never make sense. And Jesus says that we have to take it seriously. That we need our values reworked. We need greatness redefined. We need a new way to look at competition. And it is the way of His upside-down kingdom. A new paradigm. That's what He promises. And so let's ask Him for it.